This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us again for Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rachel Christie. This is the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing, where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I am once again, Kirk Hastings. Welcome back, Kirk. And with us is also Jennifer Quinn and Kevin Harrell on this end. And today's topic is going to be evolution. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. We're going to be talking about some of the arguments for and against evolution. I just want to remind people that they should check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. Check out our Facebook page, Evidence for Faith. And if you'd like to get podcasts off of iTunes, you can find us there. And check out the mother organization, Ratio Christi, at ratiochristi.org. Well, we always start out with a quote of the week, and we've been doing a series on quotes from C.S. Lewis, so I have another great C.S. Lewis quote here. This one says, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That from C.S. Lewis, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Wow. All right. We also have a great email that we got. I say it's a great email because it complimented us. So if it if it was criticizing us, it wouldn't be a great email. Do you notice my definitions, how my definitions work? <laughs> so this is from Emily. She says, I just found your podcast and listened to the episode called Should Christians Embrace Evolution? It was wonderful. Now I'll download and listen to the rest of them. I listen at work, so I'm always looking for new podcasts. I will be including your podcast into my daily rotation of Wretched with Todd Friel, John MacArthur, and Living Waters. I just wanted to say how much I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and logical approach to apologetics. Uh, I would never be able to hold up a strong witness against an argumentative atheist, but I am always encouraged to know there are very smart Christians out there who are doing so. Thanks, and may God bless you in your future endeavors from Emily. So thank you, Emily. Kirk, I guess uh, we should spend some time welcoming you back to the show. Yes, thank you. So you were away for, what, three, four weeks? Yeah. But back in the saddle now. Yeah, I like to say that uh, I was on safari. People ask me how I've been doing, and I say, safari so goody. Okay, all right. (laughs) Well, we're going to be speaking for a little while with... Dr. Alex McFarland, but I'm getting a message from John that he hasn't called in yet, so let me give John his cell number, and John can get him on the phone, and then we will talk about his upcoming conference. So, in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about evolution, a big topic. We're going to try to get through as much of it as we can today. I thought what we'd do is discuss some of the arguments for evolution. On the Facebook page, we've had a lot of interaction with atheists, and so 
you know, they put a lot of evidence out there. We refuted the evidence, but still this is in people's minds. And so it's something that we need to talk about since we haven't talked about it on the show in a while. Although if you want to go back to the podcast, there's quite a few shows on the topic. So let's just jump into some of the arguments for evolution. And when John gets Alex on board, we will talk to him. So what do atheists say is the evidence for evolution? All right, I've got a list here. Let's just run through it. Number one, evolution is the cornerstone of biology, right? Nothing in biology makes sense outside of evolution. You really have to have evolution to be able to really understand what biology is all about. This is not television, so nodding of heads doesn't work. (laughs) Yes, I hear you, Keith. Okay, great. I would phrase it a little differently, but I think we'll wait and tackle that in a bit. All right. Secondly, all true scientists believe it, right? I mean, if you don't believe it, you're not a real scientist. All right, I'll tell you what. I'm getting from John, since we're only just beginning, uh, we're getting from John that Alex is on. So let me remind people that we had a great guest a couple of months ago. We had Dr. Alex McFarlane on to talk about his book, 10 Answers for Skeptics. And at the time, he talked about a a big conference that he was running down in South Carolina that he was going to be having. And so since it's coming up in about a month, I thought we'd have him back on to talk about that. So, Alex, welcome back to Evidence for Faith. Hey, thank you very, very much. It's really an honor to be back on. Well, let me remind people that Dr. Alex McFarland is the Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. He's a talk show host who has a show called Explore the Word. He's an author and speaker, and he did a great job when he was here a couple of months ago. So welcome back again, Alex, and we want to hear all about this big conference. I believe it's called Truth for a New Generation, right? Yeah, it is, and thank you very much. Uh, I will tell you, um, in regards to North Greenville University, I am on my way to pick up a busload of students. We've got a thing we do with North Greenville you, you guys would appreciate. We call it the Life Answers Team, and these are college students that are in our apologetics program, and we're going to churches to uh, speak to the youth, speak to the adults, and we do apologetics seminars on the weekends in churches. It's, it's kind of cool. But um, the big conference, you know, I've been, um, for the grace of God, I've been putting on apologetics conferences since 1994, and uh, we call it Truth for a New Generation, but it, it really is for all ages. And this year is shaping up to be maybe the best one we've ever put on. And we've got uh, Josh McDowell and Eric Metaxas and Mike Pacona, Gary Habermas, Hank Hanegraaff, um, 24 major apologists. But i got to tell you, in the last 24 hours, my phone has been ringing off the book because of one of our keynote speakers who's got a movie out. His name is Dinesh D'Souza. And so uh, the website is com, and we hope people will come out September 28, 29, to learn how to defend the faith in our prodigal culture. Great. Now, so it's September 28th and 29th, 2012, and the website is truthforanewgeneration.com. Now, yeah. I recognized a lot of those names that you mentioned of the speakers, but a lot of our listeners aren't going to recognize those names, so they have no idea what the topics are. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of things that they might learn about if they came to this conference? Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, we're going to go over the kind of what I would call the big five, which is truth, God, the Bible, 
Jesus and the problem of pain and suffering. In other words, is there objective, absolute truth? Is there ultimate truth? How do we know God exists? How do we know that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative? Now, what about Jesus? Um, Not only did Jesus rise from the grave, but uh, did Jesus even exist? I mean, we're going to talk about, is there historical evidence for the life of Christ, Um, the resurrection of Christ, the problem of pain? You know, if God is good, why is there pain and suffering in the world? But um, in addition to main sessions, we call them plenary sessions, where everybody's together, there will be um, more than three dozen elective classes from which to choose uh, for all ages, for, you know, how to get ready for college, the way that the faith is challenged on the university campus, um, how to incorporate apologetics into the ministry of your local church. For moms and dads, uh, we've got from Focus on the Family uh, speakers that will be talking about how to instill a biblical worldview in the lives of your children. And so, um, you know, science. Uh, is there scientific, scientific evidence for the flood? Is there scientific evidence for the existence of God? Uh, you know, I kind of heard you guys before I came on. Um, is it unscientific to believe in God and creation? And so we've just got a myriad of topics, and even if people don't recognize the names of all these speakers, you know, I say it this way, um, you know, the speakers we have at Truth for New Generation, that, that would be like uh, learning basketball under Michael Jordan, or maybe yes, learning absolutely. computers from Bill Gates. Yep, that's right. The names that you mentioned are the big names. These are the top-notch, the teachers of the teachers, let's put it that way. Yeah. Now, Alex, you're also working on something called Project 2026. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, Project 2026 is a vision that God put on my heart about a year ago, and it's 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 a long-term vision. It's a 15-year vision uh, to do events like we're doing, um, well, events like I've been doing these national conferences for 18 years, but to really step it up um, and build coalitions between churches, parachurch ministries, individuals, uh, to help a new generation understand the role of Christianity and the Christian worldview in the life of America. 2026 will be our nation's 250th birthday. Right now, we, by the grace of God, we've lived 236 years under one constitution. I would say that, that our constitution uh, is imperiled right now. And um, somebody might ask, you know, well, so why do you care? You're a Christian, your home is in heaven. So what if America, you know, goes the way of many other nations and, you know, fades away? Well, you know, I believe God uh, cares about the United States of America. I believe that um, God was in on the birthing of America from the beginning. And, you know, for 200 years, essentially 80 cents out of every missionary dollar has come out of America. I believe that God loves America. I believe Satan hates America because of what America has meant to the Great Commission. And Project 2026 is through alliances, through seminars, through resources, through um, good, you know, uh, equipping of the Church, using apologetics, uh, the biblical worldview, to try and call this nation back toward the theistic moorings before it's uh, too far gone to be saved. And, and let me just say this, if you think of the engines that drive a culture, uh, the home, the Church, the classroom, the media, the marketplace, the judiciary, the arts, the sciences, really, for 40 years, uh, independently of each other, four groups 
have been working uh, in concerted efforts to uh, infiltrate these engines of culture. Um, militant homosexuals, militant secularists, atheists, and Muslims. And um, I've documented in a couple of my books, in fact, I've got a new book coming out on atheism that'll be out in about a month, how really in the late 1960s, um, activist types from these four groups, homosexuals, secular humanists, atheists, and Muslims, began to try to work and infiltrate these engines of culture, and to a large degree they have succeeded. I believe it's time for Christians to assert themselves as the cultural leaders that uh, God has called us to be. Now, this will take time, and we need to dig our heels in and be in this thing for the long haul. And uh, a lot of people will say to me, uh, well, gee, you know, Christ is coming back. Let's just hunker down and wait for the return of the Lord. Uh, Yeah, Christ can come back at any time, but just in case it's going to be another hundred years, and uh, just in case, you know, it might be a long time. It could be today, it could be a century from now. And, you know, I don't want our kids and grandkids to grow up in a totalitarian regime or a a Sharia law police state. Um, let's, Let's do the hard things, but the necessary things, and try to proclaim and defend the faith in a culture that's, uh, to a large degree, forgotten its founding. Um, yeah, but that, that's what Project 2026 is about, is using apologetics to ignite a fire of cultural change within the Church. Right. Great. It sounds to me almost like an outworking of the Manhattan Declaration of Chuck Colson, that, that you're trying to apply that into a practical church-by-church work. Well, in a, in a large way, it is. I had the privilege of being at the, uh, I was among the 35 original signers. I was there the day in New York City at the, uh, at the City Club in New York when it was written and it was finalized. And Dr. Colson not only wanted to get a million signatures on the Manhattan Declaration, uh, but he had also hoped to really have a lot of, um, a lot of uh, I don't know, I guess you'd say grassroots activism come out of it. And, you know, March 30th of this year, he was in his office. We were having a meeting, and he became ill near the end of the day, and shortly thereafter went to be with the Lord. And, um, you know, I've been putting on apologetics conferences for a long time. God has really blessed those. And, you know, I will tell you, 10 years ago, uh, almost 10 years ago, it was the Truth for New Generation conference that kind of was made, you know, we were having three and four and 5,000 people come to these, and it was that that got me hired. It focused on the family and then later um, opened a lot of other doors. But, you know, I, I really think that the Church needs to be encouraged, number one, to know that uh, the faith can be defended. Uh, we can defend the Christian faith. But the other thing is we should um, uh, rise above this resignation and defeatism. Let me say this, that, you know, um, the uh, hedonists and gay activists get a lot of press. But marriage is not dead. Um, the Muslims get a lot of favorable press, whereas evangelicals are rather marginalized. But let me say that still 82% of all adults identify themselves as Christians. And this, this thing is winnable, and we can see a spiritual awakening in our, in our nation. Now, we need the Holy Spirit of God to move, and it's going to take prayer, and it's going to take um, a proclamation, it's going to take diligence, and it's going to take persistence. But let me say that God is still on his throne, and, uh, you know, if he can create the universe and the solar system and the human race, he can revive uh, a carnal country. And so uh, the Manhattan Declaration was a start, but we need to carry it on forward, folks, so that our kids and grandkids don't 
um, grow up in a godless America. So how can people get involved in supporting Project 2026? Well, thanks for asking. For one thing, folks, you can go to one of our websites is project2026.com, Project 2026. If you're not registered to vote, and by the way, in the 2008 presidential election, uh, only one out of three Christians uh, were registered to vote. You can register to vote online on one of our websites. You can come to the conference. Uh, you can uh, go get a lot of your friends to see um, Dinesh D'Souza's movie, 2016. I saw it yesterday. It's now the fourth highest-grossing movie in the country. Friends, um, politics today, it's not so much about Democrat and Republican. It's about worldview. And you owe it to yourselves to see Project, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to see 2016 Dinesh's movie and um, learn about the worldview of the people in Washington these days because it's a very anti-Christian worldview. It's a very anti-American worldview. Um, and you can see Dinesh D'Souza in person, September 28, 29, at Truth for a New Generation. And uh, let me say this, pray for America, be involved, come to our big event. But keep on listening to this radio show, too. I want to commend you guys for the vital, vital work that you're doing with uh, Rasha Christie and with the, the Apologetics Radio. Um, we need all these different initiatives, and I'm just honored to uh, participate with you guys whenever I have an opportunity, because um, this nation... It was birthed, it was sustained out of a biblical worldview, and heaven forbid that the servants of darkness are more uh, industrious than we, the children of light. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Alex, for being back and telling us about the projects we're working on. We really appreciate it. God bless you guys. Again, truthforanewgeneration.com. And project2026.com and alexmcfarland.com. Thanks again. God bless you Well, if you're you just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Jennifer Quinn. And I'm Kevin Harrell. And we're talking about evolution. If you'd like to call in, you can call us at 609-398-1020. And we were just starting on some of the arguments for evolution. So let's get back into that. We talked about how atheists and other evolutionists will talk about evolution is the cornerstone of biology and all true scientists believe it. So um, we've all heard this one, right? All true scientists believe it. If you don't believe it, you're not really a scientist because you're letting your own biases interfere with your way of thinking and you're not thinking in a purely professional way. And that is very unscientific. Right? Exactly. All right. Uh, number three, abiogenesis is a proven fact. We heard this on the Facebook page from some atheists. So the idea that life can start from non-life has been proved in the laboratory. So there is no reason to disbelieve it. It is a proven scientific fact that life will start from non-life. And, of course, that's why we're spending uh, billions of dollars sending laboratories up to the surface of Mars to try and look for life because we know that life can be there. And they were intelligent scientists that were carrying out these studies, right, and putting these together. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes, they intelligently were able to make some particles that uh, are needed for life. Yes. But we'll get into that later. Let's make the case for evolution right now. Uh, how about the one, the fossil record supports evolution, right? I mean, there are numerous, numerous transitional forms 
Um, so many transitional forms that scientists have to fight over which ones ought to be presented to the public. Not. Um, so just a plethora of an overwhelming abundance of transitional forms that absolutely prove evolution, right? You all heard that? Well, that's the claim. That's the claim. Number five, DNA similarities support the idea of common ancestry. We all have, all life is supported by DNA. It all has the same coding system. Richard Dawkins actually even said when asked that he thought that was the strongest evidence that yes. he saw for it. That's right. That's right. So they're very much into this idea that the fact that we are all based on the same coding system, DNA, that therefore that is absolute proof that evolution is true, we all came from a common ancestor. Uh, number six, humans evolved from primates. It's very obvious. We can tell not only because of the similarity of the DNA, humans and chimps have only a 1% difference, but also we know that there was a chromosomal fusion that occurred sometime in the past, and apes have 24 chromosomes, but human beings have, or pairs of chromosomes, human beings have 23 pairs of chromosomes. And so that, and what we did was look to see, could two of those chromosomes merge together into one? And that's why we have only 23 pairs. Sure enough, when the scientists looked, they found that, yes, indeed, that's what happened. Those two chromosomes merge. And so therefore, it proves we came, or we had a common ancestor with chimpanzees. Right? Okay, you've heard that one. If you haven't, you need to go to our Facebook page where you get all this exciting stuff from all the uh, evolutionists who uh, jump on there to educate us, in case we didn't know this stuff. Uh, how about number seven? Irreducible complexity has been explained away. So the main argument of those, well, I don't want to get facetious here, so I won't pretend to name call against the ID guys like the atheists sometimes do, but let's just put it this way. Their main claim to fame is the concept of irreducible complexity. If you have a structure that seems too complex to function, you can actually break it down, and it's been shown that those parts actually do serve a function. They're just used in different types of machines. So that has cut the legs out from under, supposedly, the intelligent design people. And then, of course, uh, number eight, we already knew that ID... Scientists are actually creationists in disguise. They're not real scientists. They are just pushing their religion and trying to get your innocent child in school to be a convert to this Bronze Age uh, religion. Uh, so, so don't listen to nothing that the ID scientists say. You know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's just creationism in disguise. Uh, number nine, I love this. This came on the Facebook page, too. I couldn't believe it. But here it is. Judge Jones from the Dover trial said that ID, intelligent design, is not a science. So there. <laughs> so that is evidence for evolution because ID has been shown by a Republican-appointed judge that it's not science. Well, I want to know what Judge Judy thinks of this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Come on. She is certainly one. fair and impartial, so she would know. And only if Judge Judy said that ID was not science would we then be able to determine that ID was not science. Well, then I might believe it. Exactly. The operative word is might. <laughs> and number 10 today, examples of macroevolution, that is, changes above the species level, have been proven 
and we do have them. So in the laboratory or out in observable field conditions, we have seen actual examples of macroevolution occurring where new information came into existence when it didn't exist before. So, and that certainly is proof of evolution. So there you go. Those are the 10 arguments for evolution that uh, we culled from several websites and from our Facebook page from atheists who volunteered the information. So that's the, what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be uh, looking at those. Is that really true? And the reason I wanted to do this, the reason I wanted to bring out the arguments for people is because I want to make sure that people understand that we really do understand the arguments against our view. For instance, before I became a Christian, I used to believe these things. Some of these things uh, weren't around back 30 years ago, but many of them were. In fact, there were different, there were actually different arguments for evolution back 30 years ago that have been, have fallen by the wayside. So I'm well aware, and I, I read constantly, I'm, I'm currently reading a book on evolution called Evolution of View from the 21st Century. So we stay up on these things, we brush up on them, and we do understand them. So it's not that we're arguing from ignorance, we just, if only we really knew the evidence for evolution, we would believe it. Um, that's simply not the case. We do understand it. We can explain to anyone what the evidence is for evolution and do it in, uh, you know, I was doing it in a bit of a teasing way, but I don't have to do it in a teasing way. I can do it in just as wholeheartedly a way as any devout atheist would present the dogma of their view. So we do understand it's just that that evidence that you just heard is terribly weak in comparison to the strength of the evidence for intelligent design for creation. It is far superior, much stronger, much more based in sound logic and reason and critical thinking. So I want everybody to put on their critical thinking caps. Uh, let's start to think critically, start using logic and start analyzing some of these evidences. Anyone want to add to this list? Kirk or anybody want to add to this? Can you think of a, a strong evidence for evolution that I left off? I, I'm not saying that these are the only 10. I'm, you know, there are many, many more, I'm sure. The, those well, 10 are a good start. All right. Anybody else? Good. All right. All right. So let's stick with these 10. So let's jump into number one the, then. Evolution is the cornerstone of biology. And I think this stems mostly from Theodosius Stubzanski, who was a prominent evolutionary biologist, uh, writer, who wrote for the popular press. And he basically said he's the one, I believe, that, that made the statement that nothing in biology makes sense outside of evolution. So what about that? Well, anybody jump in that wants to... Is, is evolution really the cornerstone of biology? Okay, this, Kevin, I um, was thinking of a... I was thinking of what you said when you said that, and I was reflecting on how it might be viewed as the difference between the CEO and the mechanic on the garage floor, in the sense that these ten things strike me as the nuts and bolts of the evolutionary argument, whereas... Uh, which a mechanic on the garage floor would aptly deal with if he's going to fix my car, and I do want every bolt that belongs in my car. However, for a CEO would be thinking of a more higher level, the big picture, as we used to say in the Air Force. 
in the sense that I think a lot of this stems from the debate over scientism. Is science the only way to discern, to gather, to get truth? And thus, any other method is absolutely uh, disregarded uh, in light of science. Right. So you're jumping up to a different way. You're looking at a, a philosophical approach. So that's obviously true. There are areas outside of scientific evidence that you can get information from and get knowledge from. An example might be beauty. How do we know what beauty is? Ethical issues. Those kinds of things are not subject to scientific investigation. But let's, for the sake of discussion, let's grant this idea that evidentialism is where we're going to base our our views. We're going to look at, we're going to side with which side has the stronger evidence. So for the sake of discussion, let's do that and let's just attack things because I think the evidence is so strong against evolution for intelligent design that we don't have to even point out the, that weakness in the atheistic argument. But you're right in that it is a weakness. Well, here's a quote. This is from a scientist who's a member of the National Association of Science, Phil Skell, and he says, Darwinian evolution, whatever its other virtues, does not provide a fruitful heuristic in experimental biology. This becomes especially clear when we compare it with a heuristic framework such as the atomic model, which opens up structural chemistry and leads to advances in the synthesis of a multitude of new molecules of practical benefit. None of this demonstrates that Darwinism is false. It does, however, mean that the claim that it is the cornerstone of modern experimental biology will be met with quiet skepticism from a growing number of scientists in fields where theories actually do serve as cornerstones for tangible breakthroughs. So uh, scientists don't all agree that evolution is the cornerstone of biology. It seems like it's not all that practical to biological discovery. Along with that quote when he said there's a quiet skepticism growing among scientists, even evolutionary biologists, Jerry Coyne is um, one of those, and he even quoted that improvement in crop plants and animals occurred long before we knew anything about evolution and came about by people following the genetic principles of like begets like. I loved that quote. Absolutely. So there's a, a lot out there. Here's another one. This is from a professor of neurosurgery, Michael Egner. He says, Darwinism tells us that bacteria survive antibiotics that they're not sensitive to. So non-killed bacteria will eventually outnumber killed bacteria. That's it. All right. So, you know, wow, that's really helpful for a theory. Dead bacteria are fewer than living bacteria. Okay, great. You know, not very helpful for, what was this, a neurosurgeon, uh, Michael Egner. Here's That's another quote from Coyne in the journal Nature. He says, if truth be told, evolution hasn't yielded many practical or commercial benefits. Yes, bacteria evolve drug resistance. And yes, we must take countermeasures. But beyond that, there is not much to say. So evolution as a heuristic, as a, as a, a way of looking at things for the scientist in order to guide their discoveries really doesn't work. It doesn't provide, and I, I heard a very interesting 
interview with a retired scientist. He was one of the ones who worked on some of the bacteria-resistant antibiotics and things. And he said, basically, we didn't use evolution at all. We never thought about evolution. We just thought about how things were worked chemically, how things were engineered. Another scientist who discovered the organelle that works in meiosis to divide the chromosome by pulling on strands from the centromere where the, so that pulls the parachromosomes apart. Uh, he thought about what the structure of this device might be by thinking about it in engineering terms. He knew that there were essentially a bunch of really tiny microscopic cables that had to be uh, rapidly pulled apart. And so he theorized that there might be some kind of a motor, some kind of a, that, that rolled up the, the threads on a spindle, and that perhaps that motor might be some kind of a turbine. So he actually went and looked to see, to test that theory from an engineering, purely engineering, was this intelligently designed kind of approach. He thought an intelligent designer would make it a high-speed turbine motor. When he went to test for that theory, it turned out it was true that it, there is high-speed turbines inside cell, and that's how division is accomplished and how the centromeres are pulled apart during division. So amazing discoveries are made by not thinking in evolutionary terms rather than the opposite. What about the next topic? We hear this a lot. All true scientists believe it, right? All true scientists believe in evolution. Don't believe in evolution? Well, that's easy. You're not a true scientist. That sounds a little bit like a bias to me. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, the scientists are supposed to be unbiased, right? And if you have a bias, then you're not a true scientist. You need to be unbiased. You have to believe in evolution. Boy, and they talk I, about religious dogma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and this is a dogma, right? I mean, uh, by definition, what's a dogma? A dogma is a doctrine that you must believe in order to be in that group or that club. So there is uh, Catholic dogma that you must believe if you want to be Catholic. There is Mormon dogma that you must believe if you want to call yourself a Mormon, you've got to believe these things. That makes it dogmatic. You can't, if you reject that doctrine... You are simply not Mormon. Same with Christianity. There are doctrines that you must believe, such as the Trinity. If you reject the doctrine of the Trinity, you are not a Christian. You might call yourself a Christian, but you are not a Christian. That makes the Trinity a dogma. The doctrine of the Trinity is a dogma. Well, guess what? In atheism, there is the dogma of evolution. Don't believe in evolution? You're not a scientist. Okay? <laughs> Oh, that's Kevin. I was thinking, I always try to explain to my daughter when she asks me how to respond to certain things said in her college, I always say to often apply the reverse of it to see if it's credible. So why couldn't I say all true scientists believe in intelligent design? Couldn't I say that too? Absolutely. What would be, what would be the difference between our two statements? Right. I say mine's true, and they say theirs is true. So there must be something that goes beyond that to discern which one is true, or if this statement that all true scientists believe it, whether that's even true at all. Right, exactly. It also falls into the uh, area of a fallacy. There's a fallacy called the 
true Scotsman, right? So, and it's the fallacy that, well, if you don't believe that, then you're not a true Scotsman, right? So, <laughs> don't you have to say that with an accent? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually, Christians will fall into this realm too, because just as I said that there are true things such as dogmas that you must believe, they will put their pet belief into that area and fall into the fallacy of, you know, true Scotsman by saying, oh, you don't believe in, uh, say, immersion baptism? Well, you're not a true Christian, then. You don't believe in immersion baptism? Well, that's a fallacy. That's a, that's the uh, fallacy of no true Scotsman. No true Scotsman would believe such and such, or, you know. Hmm. So, I don't know what it, what it would be. No true Scotsman would not wear a kilt or something like that. So. Not to mention that that statement in itself threatens like academic and scientific endeavors because current scientific research is pointing in the total opposite direction because that is an old theory. And so when you truly are um, looking at the evidence with an open mind, you could be open to interpret the evidence however it leads, which yes. current scientific research is pointing toward intelligent design and their statistics to back that up with the amount of like 700 doctoral scientists there's been um, a study that are said they are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life and i wanted to look that up we're basing some of our talk today some of our information from a article in discovery institute's website uh, this is under their science and culture uh, section. It's called The Facts About Intelligent Design, a response to the National Academy of Sciences, Science, Evolution, and Creationism handout or handbook. So that's in there, and it talks about this. And so this is a couple of years old. I, I think there's a lot more than 700 on there now. I wanted to go to the website, and I completely forgot to do that and look up how many... Yeah, that was from 2008, so I'm sure the number has even grown. Yep, yep, I think there are a lot more. But there's also this quote from Lynn Margulis, uh, who opposes intelligent design, but she says, Darwinian claim to explain all of evolution is a popular half-truth whose lack of explicative power is compensated for only by the religious ferocity of its rhetoric. And then she also says, new mutations don't create new species, they create offspring that are impaired. So uh, there is a lot of dissension in the ranks. It's not true that there is a 100%, you know, or even 99%, you know, everybody all included on the evolutionary side among scientists. And even if there were, would that make it right? Would that make it true? You know, is science done by vote? right? No, no, it's not. It's done by the evidence, even if people don't believe it. Look at what Galileo was trying to do. You know, he was trying to promote a heliocentric concept. He had a lot of evidence and people just didn't believe it. It's not because they were stupid. It's because they had lots of reasons to think otherwise and because everyone else did, right? Everyone else thought that the earth was the center. So, I mean, we just don't go by vote. It's not a matter of numbers in science anyway. Majority doesn't rule. The squashing of appropriate, uh, respectful, thoughtful questioning, would that not be one of the definitions of tyranny? So if a academian or a scientist is only allowed to be an evolutionist, and if not, he's persecuted for that professionally, how is that not tyranny? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Jennifer Quinn. I'm Kevin Harrell. 
and we are talking about the arguments for evolution. So we're up to evidence number three, abiogenesis. According to one of our Facebook posters, abiogenesis is a proven fact. Wow, that's something. What do you think? I mean, uh, I can, we're kind of wasting our time here, guys. Uh, if a, abiogenesis is a proven fact, I guess we don't need God to start life because life just starts on its own. That's abiogenesis. So it's Greek. A means none, bio, life, and genesis beginning. So a non-living beginning, right? Life from non-life. What do you think? Yeah, well, I decided the other day that I wanted a new pet, so I went out and got a rock, and I brought it to life, and now I have a pet rock. <laughs> That's right, and all you need, I think, what do you do? You just have to, a little bit of ammonia gas and a little bit of electrical spark? Well, well it's a scientific secret how I did it. I can't tell you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know what? I think you could make some money off of that idea, a pet rock. Yeah, that's that got possibilities. That's got possibilities, doesn't it? <laughs> See, Jen is looking here like she has no clue what we're right. talking about. Okay. No, I'm just she looking was, at my <laughs> She must be under 30. She was 30. not alive during the pet rock <laughs> era. Did you know that people used to buy rocks? I have heard of that like as a joke, but I definitely was not around at the time people were doing that. <laughs> yeah. and, and I know that when, one Christmas I opened up a present and there was just a rock in there. That is too far. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was right next to your big flare jeans and disco shoes, right? <laughs> That's right. Keith, Keith, are you sure that wasn't a piece of charcoal? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. No, that would that's um Halloween. I used to get charcoal for Halloween, right? Oh. We're making all these cultural references to you. Now Jen is like she has no idea. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you should um, define just for the listeners exactly what abiogenesis is. Oh, I thought I did. No. Okay, so it's Greek, A meaning none, bio life, genesis, beginning, so beginning from non-life. So it's life from non-life. So that's, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what abiogenesis is. So it's all of the theories, experiments, and things that they're trying to show whether life could actually come from non-life. And this applies in the non creation account how okay. what where in the time frame would a atheist put this ability to bring life from non-life oh well this is back at the beginning of the earth um so four and a half billion years for the earth so the first bacteria they think they're finding around three and a half to four billion years so essentially the very moment that the earth cooled down from being nothing but lava life just appeared so in other words, there was no life, and suddenly there was life yes. without any external intelligent cause to it. According to them. According to the claim. That's right. So we yeah, are all related know, to rocks. I've never heard any evidence that shows that non-living chemicals can spontaneously combine to form a complex living creature. Right. Yeah, exactly. The best they can do, uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the Miller-Urey experiments done in the 60s. So this is where you hear about the glass tubes and contraption where they put together some uh, ammonia and other gases and then they put some electricity for sparks. So they were thinking of the early atmosphere of the earth and lightning strikes and things. And then would that produce amino acids? And lo and behold, they were able to create some amino acids. Okay, so that is kind of like saying that you know, if you 
can create a brick than you can build a skyscraper, right? That's basically the difference. I mean, an amino acid is a tiny, tiny part of the building blocks of life. So it's, it's really almost nothing. It's, I, I guess it probably would be more accurate to say a grain of sand that might make up a brick because amino acids have to be strung together in a specific coded sequence in order to make proteins. And proteins are not just blobs of amino acid like they used to think decades ago. Now we know that proteins are highly sophisticated, highly structured, complex shapes and with moving parts. And uh, they are really almost like uh, tools. They're like hammers. They're like scissors. They do things. They're things that they're they're things that transport things. They're things that help other chemical processes to occur. They actually do physical things. So uh, it's not like a brick. I mean, you know, it's like um, be like a washing machine in a house. That's what a protein is like. Then those proteins are combined to make uh, bigger and better machines. So you know that just because you can make some part. Uh, spontaneously arise does not mean that you have got anything close to what you would need to create the first replicating life. Now, on behalf of them, they would say, well, we have things like RNA, we have that seem to be able to rec- uh, replicate like a virus. So, so that's where, that's the approach they're taking. So that, so that if you can start with something simpler like a replicating RNA. Well, again, this is a really highly sophisticated construct. A virus is not a simple thing. I mean, it's simple in comparison to a bacteria. Yeah, grant you that. But it's not a simple thing in comparison to what it's made out of, the building blocks like things like amino acids. Further argument against this would be the fact that the Miller-Urey experiments got the atmosphere of the Earth completely wrong. So we now know scientifically that there was a great deal of oxygen in the early atmosphere at that time. So the amino acids would be immediately oxidized and destroyed long before they could combine together into chains and just accidentally get all of the right-handed amino acids would have to be, because remember, all of life is built on right-handed amino acids. And then in the Miller-Urey experiments, there was a 50-50 ratio because they're just being naturally created, even though it took a little bit of intelligence to put the tubes together and the sparking and all that stuff. So, But we won't go there. Um, so there's really just uh, the whole idea that there is a way to create life out of non-life is just believing fairy tales. Uh, it is magic without a magician. Well, I was just thinking that uh, I heard the story once that somebody gave an example that uh, of something that has all of the ingredients for life, and that would be someone who has recently died. Their body has everything you need for life, but there's only one thing missing, life. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Or the way that Dr. Mike uh, used to explain it on previous shows is you can take a frog. This is a really gross thing. Don't listen, Jen. You can take a frog and put it in a blender, uh, turn it on for five minutes, and at the end you will have not only a primordial soup, you will have the perfect primordial soup. It's got everything all there. It's got proteins, <laughs> enzymes, all kinds of complex structures that can't be chopped up by the blades. You think you're going to get life out of that? Uh-huh. 
No matter how much time it has. Exactly. <laughs> In fact, time will be its enemy. Time will make it become even more disorganized, break down, fall apart, and go back into its component parts. Deteriorate. So, um, time is the em- enemy of uh, evolution. It's not its friend. It actually makes things worse. I was thinking more like it'd be my wife when she saw that blender and yelled at me for it. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Might have another extinction there at your house. <laughs> well, uh, I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. Jennifer Quinn. I'm Kevin Harrell. And you have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Send your comments or your questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And please join us again next week at the same time for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!